0: Three, two, one. Welcome to the Dave the Dog Trainer podcast, episode one thirty-nine, and three episodes in one week. Here we are. Whew. Let's go. Yeah. Josh just had to go get a massage a couple hours ago just to get yeah. himself ready for talking oh. for another hour in one week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. Now, now I'm just tired and like groggy. Yeah, um, yeah I'm. I was talking to him. I was, I was. I'm very surprised. Like, this has been a lot of content to make. On top of your normal stuff that you do all you know, all week. So I just don't
0: realize how like how hard coming up with something to talk about for like an hour per week is try coming up with something to talk about for three hours in one week <laughs> yeah it's
1: a lot it's it's insane yeah I, I,
0: your vocal cords are all right over there you vocal, vocal cords are just fine right. yeah, yeah, yeah you
1: should be a singer
0: so so the first two that we did that have come out already so 137 is out 138 will be coming out mm-hmm. um they were kind of q a episodes right so yeah. we we did some some staff feedback on things we shared some some client successes. We reviewed Mm -hmm. a little little, little hate video that came out about us, talked about that a little bit. Uh, And man, I've been sitting around for the last couple hours thinking about what the hell are we going to talk about today? (laughs) I was literally (laughs) just sitting outside, just like going through my phone, looking up freaking blog posts. I was like this, that. I was like, (laughs) because I've pretty much exhausted my things from the week that I can talk about in the last two episodes. So I was looking and you know, blog posts led me to certain books that I had, and then I'm looking at my bookshelf, and I had this book, um, Jan Fennel's The Dog Listener, and and I've never picked up this book. I bought this book maybe three or four months ago because I think a listener on YouTube commented saying, you got to read this book. Okay. It's a good book. Right. Yeah. I don't know who the person was that said it. I had never heard of the book before. I had never <laughs> heard of Jan Fennel in general, <laughs> Okay. right? Uh, but this book has been sitting on my shelf, so I picked it up. I was like, I wonder if you know. Obviously, I've never read it before, so I didn't know exactly where to dive into. I was like, I wonder if this will make a good book to to read. And and I don't know why I was under the assumption, just by the looks of the book, mm-hmm. that it was going to be like a her life story and maybe some tips and tricks on on, on dogs. But it was going to be more like Caesar's like uh, like uh, the the Dog Whisperer' his first book, which was kind of like a story mm-hmm. of him but sharing some client stories and stuff like that as well yeah I started getting into this and this is a based on my my five minutes of skimming through this book this seems like a very well put together book going over her concepts of training right? Which okay. I could really appreciate. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of got, it's broken up really nicely into like, you know, introductions to your dogs, right? Um, you know, mm. establishing leadership in your pack, working on separation anxiety, working on aggression.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you know, it's, it's, it seems nicely uh, bookmarked uh, over the course of it just on its mm. own. So what we're going to do is we're just going to spend some time going through this book. It's been a while since we've done one of these book readings yeah. on the podcast. If you guys go back to the first like 10 episodes because I had no idea how to do a fucking podcast, and my only mm. exposure to them up until that point was Jocko Willing's podcast, where he would sit there and fucking read books to you. <laughs> I was like, "That's what I got to do." Yeah, we got to read books. <laughs> so, so we went through and we read books, obviously. So, uh, so we're gonna do that today. I think it'll be fun. I don't got a whole lot to talk about. So, what we're gonna do is we're gonna do a little learning together on Jan Fennel. And right. uh, I read like the first like three pages of this chapter um, just earlier, just to make sure it was. Something I wanted to talk about talk yeah. about, and read, and, and it seems pretty cool, right? All right. So we're going to start with here. We're going to start at Chapter 6 of this book. The book is called The Dog Listener. This book was published the first time in 2000, right? Wow. Okay. Uh, Jan Fennell, I think she's British or, or something like that, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, she got a nice picture of her just in the mountains, in the fields. <laughs> looks like fucking The Sound of Music or something. It does, kind of. Dogs, yeah. You know. <laughs> The and, um, dogs. you know, she seems to have a little bit of the, you know, I, I think a lot of this first chapter here gets into comparing dogs to wolves and stuff, which Caesar does as well, which, you know, we could sit here and debate all day of like, mm. Oh, is that right? Is that wrong? There's people that have been like, it's been debunked or this or that, mm. but we're going to read it and we're just going to kind of talk about it as we go and see uh, what we like and what we don't like about it. Cool. What do you think, Josh? I'm excited. I like the books. <clears throat> All right, guys, so we're starting at Chapter 6 of The Dog Listener by Jan Fennell. This is the 10th anniversary edition. Yeah. Very cool.
1: Real quick, what was what was the, the sport dog one that we did a long time ago? Do you remember that book? The sport dog one. It, it was about the hunting dogs. That's
0: yeah, sitting right over yeah. there. It's an old-ass one. We actually, yeah, we're can... like halfway through it because I still have my bookmarks right in the middle of it. It's literally sitting right there under those VHSs. Hunting dogs. Can you believe that I just said under those VHSs? Yeah. <laughs> I have like, People are gonna be like, "What?" I the? have two fucking VHS tapes over there called like Canine Command or something, yeah. which was like a dog training series that came out whenever the fuck, like back when they made VHS. Yeah, stuff, that a client of mine like gifted to me. He's like, "Here, you can have these." I was yeah, like, cool. I'll take them. <laughs> I don't have a way to watch them right now. but Yeah, for sure. Maybe no. one day I'll get a VHS player and we'll plug it into this fucking TV. Yeah. And watch them. <laughs> that would go. be good. We should do that. I yeah, get one off like. Craigslist for $3. Oh,
1: I'm sure, yeah. But yeah, that How to Train Hunting Dogs, that was one of my favorites. Like,
0: Maybe we'll, maybe we'll see. We might pick back up on some of these a little bit again. Yeah. All right, let's start getting into this. Okay. So chapter six, establishing leadership of the pack. Listen, this is a skill everybody needs to know. How mm-hmm. do I establish leadership of my pack of dogs? Mm. Let's see what Jan Fennell has to say yeah. about it. <coughs> Clear the voice. <laughs> Get my reading voice on. Get your Amazon uh, right. audio book. No one could have a higher regard for the intelligence of the dog than me. There are still times when I seriously wonder whether they are wiser creatures than some of the humans with whom I come into contact. Even I have had to accept that one thing is beyond them. However, dogs are never going to learn our language. The bad news is that to communicate successfully with our dogs, it is up to us to learn their language. It is a task that requires an open mind and a respect for the dog. No one who regards a dog as their inferior will achieve anything. It must be respected at all times for what it is. The good news, however, is that whereas humans speak in a bewildering range of tongues and dialects, dogs share one universal language. It is a silent and extremely powerful language, yet at its heart are a simple set of principles that, with a few subtle variations, influence the way all dogs behave. To understand the principles of this language, we first have to understand the society within which all our dogs believe they are living. And the model for this community is the wolf pack. <laughs> How's it sounding? I feel like I'm really no. channeling my inner audio book voice right now. Yeah, it's good. I really want to make this entertaining for the people because <laughs> nothing pisses me off more than when I'm listening to an audiobook <laughs> And the narrator of it is just so boring.
1: No, you're doing a great job. All right.
0: The modern dog's appearance and lifestyle is, of course, far removed from that of its ancient ancestor. Centuries of evolution have not removed its basic instincts, however. The dog may have been taken out of the wolf pack, but the instincts of the wolf pack have not been taken out of the dog. Two immensely powerful forces guide the life of a wolf pack. The first is its instinct for survival. The second is its instinct for reproduction. The means it has evolved to guarantee these ends is a hierarchical system as strict and successful as any in the animal world. Every wolf pack is made up of leaders and subordinates, and at the head of every pack's pecking order are the ultimate rulers, the alpha pair. As the strongest, healthiest, most intelligent, and most experienced members of the pack, it is the alpha pair's job to ensure its survival. As a result, they dominate and dictate everything that the pack does. Their status is maintained by consistent displays of authority. Underlining this, the alpha pair are the only members of the pack who breed. As humans, we have, of course, developed along different, what we would like to believe are more democratic lines. Mm -hmm. Yet sometimes I wonder whether it is we rather than the dogs who took the wrong turn. How much trust can we really place in our leaders? How many of us have even met them? Within the wolf pack, no such uncertainty exists. The alpha pair control and direct life within the pack, and the remainder of the pack accept that rule unfailingly. Each subordinate member is content to know its place and its function within this pecking order. Each lives happy in the knowledge that it has a vital role to play in the overall well-being of the pack. All right, guys. Again, got the wolf pack stuff, right? Yeah. I'm not here to say that it's true, that it's false, that dogs are truly these defend, you know, descendants of wolves that all of the same instincts and the ways they operate and stuff like that are passed down. And that's why dogs do the things that they do. Mm. And that, you know, all the, the hierarchical, uh, uh, ways of the wolf packs and stuff like that Mm. are, are really as deep and true as people make them out to be and stuff like that. But let's just take it at its face value right now and say that everything said right there is how we operate our households with dogs. We have dogs yeah. that are subordinates to us. We dictate all of the things that they do. We obviously give them privileges, and, and that's not always this like dictatorship of, <laughs> of you could never do anything that you want to do and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. we are ultimately the ones that are in control of making sure everything runs smoothly. Mm-hmm. And it's undeniable. Yeah. Right? Yep. All right, moving on. The hierarchy of the pack is constantly reinforced through the use of highly ritualized behavior. The ever-changing nature of pack life, in which alphas and their subordinates are frequently killed or replaced through age, makes this essential. As far as the wolf's modern-day descendants are concerned, however, four main rituals hold the key to the pack instinct which lives on within them. They are central to all that will follow. Okay, let's talk about that paragraph for a second here. <clears throat> How many people out there—I I could I could just say I've, I've known— dozens of clients that have been in this situation before who they themselves as the owner of the dogs are not in control of anything. They have a pack of two or three dogs. And when one starts to get older or one dies, mm-hmm. fighting starts happening. You may have lived together peacefully and harmoniously with these dogs for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. Mm. But as one gets sick, weak, and older or dies, that hierarchy gets shifted. Mm. Again, another thing, I'm not saying it's 100% (laughs) directly correlated, and that's the way it works all the time, forever and ever, but that is an undeniable thing that we have seen many, many, many times before. Yep. It is no surprise to discover the alpha pair are at their most dominant during hunting and feeding times. Food, after all, represents the pack's most fundamental need. Its very survival depends on it. As the strongest, most experienced, and intelligent members of the pack, the alpha pair take the lead during the search for new hunting grounds. When prey is spotted, they lead the chase and direct the kill. The alpha pair's status of the pack's key decision makers is never more in evidence than during this process. The wolf's prey can range from mice to buffalo, from elk to moose. A pack may spend hours stalking, cornering, and slaying its target, covering as far as 50 miles at a time. The organization of this operation requires a combination of determination, tactics, and management skills. It is the alpha pair's job to provide this leadership. It is the job of the subordinates to follow and provide support. When the kill has been made, the alpha pair gets absolute precedence when it comes to eating the carrion. The pack's survival depends on the remaining in peak physical condition, after all. Only when they are satisfied and signal their feed is over will the rest of the pack be permitted to eat and then according to the strict pecking order with the senior subordinates, feasting first and juniors last. Back at the camp, the pups and babysitters will be fed by the hunters regurgitation of their food. The order is absolute and unbreakable. A wolf will act aggressively towards any animal that attempts to eat before it. Even the fact that the pack contains its blood relatives will not stop the alpha attacking any animal that breaks with protocol and dares to jump the queue. The alpha pair repay the respect the pack bestows upon them with total responsibility for its welfare. Whenever danger threatens, it is once more the role of the alpha pair to protect the pack, This is the third situation in which the natural order of the pack is underlined. The alpha pair perform their leadership role unblinkingly, and from the front, they will react to danger in one of three ways, selecting one of the three Fs, flight, freeze, or fight, and will run away, ignore the threat, or defend themselves. Whichever response the alpha pair select, the pack will again back up their leaders to the hilt. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about the feeding thing. This is where I would agree and disagree. Right. Not Mm -hmm. that there's a whole lot to necessarily agree and disagree with, but there are some old school trainers that get really, really crazy over like you have to eat before your dog, right? (laughs) Seriously, that's like a that's like a common old thing of like, you know, your dog, your dog eats after After you you. kind of thing. Okay. And I hear owners come in sometimes and tell me, like, yeah, I make sure that my dog eats after me just so they see me (laughs) as the alpha. That shit don't matter. Yeah. (laughs) I'll tell you that flat out that shit don't matter. Right. But getting back to the packing order, right? If your dog sees you as in control, right? Meaning you are the one that ultimately would resource guard things, right? Your dog will never resource guard things back to you. Mm-hmm. Right? So let's look at it this way. Most situations where dogs will get themselves into trouble or start guarding are situations where we should actually be the one doing the guarding. Yeah. Right? Food, right? How many times do we see a dog that resource guards food that is extremely impulsive about taking any food that they want anywhere and everywhere, maybe in a non-aggressive fashion, as opposed to how they might be over their food bowl? Mm -hmm. Meaning, maybe they get aggressive over their food bowl while they're eating, but in day-to-day life, they're constantly stealing shit off the counter or trying to snatch food out of your hand while you're sitting on the couch eating chips or or Mm -hmm. whatever the hell it may be, right? That is a situation where you should look at that where the roles are reversed, Mm -hmm. right? Your dog is resource-guarding food from you. Why are you not resource-guarding food from your dog? Mm -hmm. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, I get it. Right? So, like, let's look at it this way. We could equate me sitting on the couch eating chips, and my dog comes over to try to take them, and I tell him no and give him a firm correction Mm -hmm. for that. That is the equivalent of me resource-guarding my food to my dog.
1: Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah. So
0: flip the roles is basically what I'm saying. And look at all the situations where your dog is just taking resources from you and you're allowing it, Mm -hmm. right? Start guarding your resources a little bit to your dog, right? If you're struggling with resource guarding issues with your dog, right? Yeah. Uh, Same with, you know, the affection side of things, right? Like why is your dog resource guarding you towards other dogs? You should be resource guarding your dog from other dogs in situations, Mm -hmm. right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Flip the script. Flip the script a little bit. The fourth key ritual is performed whenever a pack is reunited after being apart. As the pack reassembles, the alpha pair remove any confusion by reasserting their dominance via clear signals to the rest of the pack. The pair have their own personal space, a comfort zone if you like, within which they operate. No other wolf is allowed to encroach into this space unless invited to do so. By rejecting or accepting the attention of other members who wish to enter their space the alpha pair re-establishes their primacy in the pack without ever resorting to cruelty or violence. We may consider them to be pets, but our dogs still believe they are functioning members of a community that operates according to principles directly descended from the wolf pack. Whether its pack consists of itself and its owner or a large family of humans and other animals, the dog believes it is part of the social grouping and a pecking order that must be adhered to at all times. What is more, all of the problems we encounter with our dogs are rooted in their belief that they rather than us, their owners, are the leaders of their particular pack. Again, mm-hmm. they're the ones that guard. They're the ones that solicit the attention, mm-hmm. right? They're the ones that keep you out of their space when they don't want it, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. That's why I was using the yeah. example of resource guarding is, you know. Yeah, like, I would never tell somebody, like, oh, resource guard your food from your dog. Yeah. But if you really break it down and you want to look for these similarities of, like, could this whole, like, wolf pack theory be actually accurate in the case of dogs, we could take many, many things we would do to have a healthy, balanced relationship with our dog and equate it into that, and it makes Mm. a lot of sense. Yeah. In our modern society, we keep dogs as eternal puppies, feeding them and caring for them so they never have to fend for themselves. This is why dogs should never be given the responsibility of being alpha of a pack as they will simply be unable to cope with the decisions they face. The responsibility puts immense pressure on them and leads to the behavioral problems I so often witness. Again, we always talk about dogs can't handle the responsibilities that we put on them, right? They're mm. not intelligent enough to be able to handle that, which is why we need to handle it for them to alleviate a lot of the stress that causes behavioral issues. Mm. In the course of the last few years, the many dogs I have worked with have suffered symptoms ranging from biting to barking to bicycle chasing. Yet in each and every case, the root of the problem lay in the dog's misplaced belief about its place within the pack. So in each and every case, I've started the same way by going through the process of omission bonding. I've never deviated once. It is absolutely fundamental. The bonding takes the form of four separate elements each correlates to the specific items I've identified. When the pack's hierarchy is established and underlined, on each occasion, the dog is confronted with a question which we must answer on its behalf. Hmm. Here's four, the four bullet points. When the pack reunites after separation, who is the boss now? When the pack is under attack or there is fear of danger, who is going to protect them? When the pack goes on a hunt, who is going to lead them? When the pack eats food, what order do they eat in? This is a holistic method of working. All four elements must take place in conjunction with each other, and they must be repeated constantly, day in, day out. The dog must, in effect, be blitzed with signals. It needs to learn that it is not its responsibility to look after its owner, what it is not its job to care for the house, that all it has to do is sit back and lead a comfortable and enjoyable life. It is a mantra that must be repeated over and over again. Only then will a dog get the message that it is no longer in charge. Only then will it be able to exercise the most powerful form of control, self-control. After this has been achieved, the task of tackling the specific problems of the individual dog becomes infinitely easier. <clears throat> so I'm very interested to see, obviously, how she breaks these down. That's obviously the next couple parts here. It's, it's interesting, right? Because this approach of the way she's looking at it, she's basically saying, let me take a look at just all the things you're doing already. Mm-hmm. and in most cases training isn't about get so focused on the commands mm-hmm. right but in actuality it's about how we're living with the dog 24/7 mm right yeah. how are we handling the walk how are we handling the threats on the walk or is the dog the one handling the threats on the walk which is leash reactivity right That's true. when you return after being separated who is the boss now do all rules go out the window do you show the dog oh my god i couldn't handle being away from you right mm-hmm. uh, you show you know we call it weakness in those situations mm. The pack goes on a hunt. I'm not sure what she's referring to with that one, obviously. I'll be interested to see that. And then with the pack eating the food, I'm very curious to hear her opinions on that because I'm curious if it falls into the, <laughs> uh, you know, who eats first kind of mentality. Yeah. Like so, yeah, so we'll then, see what we get. that would be interesting. All right. So here's the first one, reuniting the five-minute rule. So before I even read this, I, I, I'm I just going to throw out there the thing I always <laughs> coach my, uh, my clients on which is when I come home, I have a pretty strict policy of generally five to 10 minutes of not interacting with the dogs, right? Mm. I've done this forever and ever. I always say I'm okay with my dogs being excited to see me, but by nurturing that excitement, you create this frantic obsession over you when you get home. Mm. Or if you could just go five to 10 minutes of just ignoring your dog when you walk in the house, that doesn't mean like don't let them out of their crate. That means let them out, but ignore them. Take them out to go to the bathroom, but I'm not interacting with you. Go to the bathroom and then I'm going to get my shit together, yeah. get myself something to drink, take my shoes off, take my coat off, stuff mm-hmm. like that. If you could just do that one thing in like two to four weeks of implementing that consistently every single day, you're going to notice such an absolute massive change in yeah. how your dog acts and their overall self-confidence, confidence, and respect once you get home. Mm. So let's read it. <clears throat> the first requirement of emission bonding. I don't know what that word is. Mission. A-M-I-C-H-I-E-N I don't know. I don't know. Is to establish leadership during day-to-day life at home. To do this involves tackling those moments when the dog and its owners are reunited after a separation. Most people imagine these reunions happen on a handful of occasions each day when they go out to work or to the shops, for instance. In fact, the act of separation occurs on countless occasions every day. Mm. Throughout all that is to follow, the dog should be seen not as a lovable domestic pet, but as a deeply protective, fiercely loyal leader of a wolf pack. So regardless of whether its owner leaves the house or simply leaves the room to go to the garden or the bathroom, the dog sees it as an instance of a charge or child leaving its protective custody. While the human probably knows how long they will be absent, the dog does not. As far as it is concerned, its charge may never return, and it may never see them again. So whether they are away for eight hours or eight seconds, the moment the charge reappears, the dog will go through a ritual aimed at reestablishing its leadership. To readdress this, the owner must begin displaying the behavior of the leader, and the first steps to establish that leadership is learning to ignore the dog. What a powerful skill yeah to learn with your animals (laughs) yeah some people are absolutely incapable of ignoring their dog we see it all the time i mean i used to do like when i did a lot of like consults and stuff with people i would talk to them and just curiously i would just watch and watch and watch and over the course of an hour-long consult if the dog was within an arm's reach they were touching the dog Mm. the entire they couldn't they physically could not stop And the second i made them aware of it they weren't even aware they were doing it and then when they went to go stop doing it the dog freaked the fuck out Mm. absolute panic they're so used to that constant interaction they stopped and it's like oh my god what are you doing keep petting me what's going on (sighs) right i'm here i'm here the more you could practice just ignoring your dog man Mm -hmm. again massive changes oh yeah. All dogs go through different rituals when they are reunited with their owners. They may start leaping around or barking, licking, or bringing in toys. Whatever they do, it is crucial that the owner turns a blind eye, that he or she pretends it is not happening. Failure to do this means the dog has been acknowledged or paid homage to, that its behavior has succeeded in getting attention, and the dog has achieved what it wants. Its primacy has been confirmed. Even by turning around and saying, stop it, an owner is allowing a dog to achieve its aim. The key to this, then, is that the dog must not be engaged with in any way. By this, I mean no eye contact, no conversation, no touching, unless it is gently pushed the dog away. The owner must do nothing. As Caesar Milan would say, no touch, no talk, no eye contact. <laughs> it's true. Listen. The man has brought some, you know, yeah. again, we could debate if you like him or hate him, but he's brought some big things to the table. And I'll tell you that no mm-hmm. touch, no talk, no eye contact phew, it just flows off the tongue when you say it. Yeah, you know? it does. It just hits every nail on the head of what you should stop doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> you
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> I also liked it. Uh, she said exactly what you predicted.
0: Yeah, by exactly. The way. Now, I like mm-hmm. how she went so far as to say. A lot of people look at it as just when you leave the house and come home, which frankly, when I coach clients through it, that's what I coach them through, mm-hmm. you know? But she was even referencing going out in the backyard, go to take out the trash, mm-hmm. right? Go to the bathroom. Like gaining leverage over any of those situations can really, really go a long way. Yeah. That's that's smart. I like that. Uh, no matter how agitated or aggressive the dog is, it will at some point decide to bring this ritual to an end and walk away because the behavior is no longer getting reinforced. Mm-hmm. Reinforcement goes away, behavior goes away. Mm-hmm. Getting to the science, the quadrant of learning we're using is negative punishment. Mm-hmm. We are removing attention to decrease an unwanted behavior. Removing something the dog perceives as reinforcing. It must be reinforcing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter how agitated or aggressive the dog is, it will at some point decide to bring this ritual to an end and walk away. In most cases, the dog will probably take a brief time out to evaluate what has happened. It may very well return and go through the same repertoire again. If it does, ignore it. What is happening is that the dog is sensing a fundamental change in its environment. Each time its leader, or each time it returns, it does so, trying to spot a chink in the aspiring new leader's armor. I have seen dogs go through the same ritual a dozen times before giving up. Each time, the performance becomes more and more muted. By the end, their bark may be barely audible. Hmm. The key thing to remember is that nothing can happen until this repertoire is over. Any attempt to get the dog to cooperate with you before then will be futile. The dog will signal that its resistance is over by relaxing or walking off somewhere and laying down. It is the first indication owners get that the dog is seeing them and their relationship in a new light. The dog's deferral reflects a new respect for the owner's space. The process is far from over, but an important breakthrough has been made. I talk a lot about more... It's these springs, man. Sorry, that one guy's going to be mad at us now. Yeah, he's like, Quit fucking with yeah. the microphone. Don't touch the microphone. Sorry. <clears throat> um, I talk a lot about like when we're dealing with like serious behavioral modification cases, mm-hmm. aggression, anxiety, things like that. You have to make drastic changes... Where starting now, like let's say right now you're like, I'm starting a behavioral modification program. It's not going to be this slow process where the dog just like unknowingly alters its behavior into something good, right? (laughs) Yeah. You need to make dramatic changes. And something like this is a dramatic fucking change that you can make that immediately, like she was saying, the dog will be like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) And if you commit to it and don't fall for the little, again, looking for the chinks in the armor like she said – Uh, Man, once your dog finally kind of gives up on that, Mm -hmm. holy shit, is that massive.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Where am I at? (laughs) The important thing now is that nothing happens for at least five minutes. The dog can be given more time if preferred, but under no circumstances should anything else be attempted during those five minutes have elapsed. I call it timeout. During this time, the owner should just carry on with their normal routine. Some get impatient. So I tell them, if they could think of nothing else, they should pop into the kitchen and make a cup of tea or coffee, as that usually eats up the time. The object of this break is to allow the silent process of disposing the dog, or deposing the dog to begin. What the owner is inviting the dog to do during this time is to dwell on what has just happened. It has been given space to realize two things have occurred. Firstly, its ritual has failed to achieve any sort of response. And secondly, something has changed within its relationship with its fellow pack member. There has been a subtle shift in the pecking order. Some dogs are quicker on the uptake than others. In some instances it may take less time, in other cases it may take longer. In my experience, however, five minutes is generally long enough for this assimilation to take place. If during that time a dog is to come or during that time a dog comes to its owner uninvited, it must be ignored. Even if it comes to sit in the owner's lap, it must be ejected without a word. The dog must not be allowed to demand anything anymore. It can, of course, be a challenge, particularly with big physical dogs, but an owner must be steadfast. If an owner is standing and the dog comes at their body, they must block it with the body and turn away from the dog. If a dog jumps up, putting its front legs onto the owner's lap, the owner must silently put a hand on the dog's chest and push them down gently. The owner must not shove or say anything. I cannot emphasize this point enough. Even saying, go away, ensures the dog uh, has got its way and has been acknowledged. Once the five minutes have elapsed, the job of engaging with the dog can begin. And it is by engaging with it in a specific way that an owner will be able to underline the message that a new leadership has been established. Mm. Now the only thing I I really really love everything about this and to people out there listening if you're struggling with your dog's behavior separation anxiety over arousal <laughs> stuff like that I would recommend you follow this to a fucking tee yeah it's gonna sure. help you so much the only thing I would add to it is that the reason why she says don't acknowledge the dog is because generally speaking getting back to our thing we talked about last time which is what is actually aversive in the dog's mind versus what is not aversive yeah. most people telling the dog stop it go away this that <laughs> is is generally in some cases reinforcing the dog actually wants that to happen they're looking for attention. Mm-hmm. The only thing I would add is if you add actual punishment in, meaning something the dog actually finds aversive mm-hmm. for the jumping and getting on your lap and stuff like that, this process will probably go 10 times faster as well. Yeah. But, but it is key that it is something that is actually punishing to the dog.
1: Yeah. I think my, my biggest takeaway on that was the not even like turning around to say no or mm-hmm. or not like zero acknowledgement.
0: Unless it's going to be followed by actual punishment. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But yeah,
1: 100%. Yeah, that zero chink in the armor. Is that what she said? Yeah.
0: Not giving in. No. You have to outwill your dog. So many cases, when we hear owners that are struggling with something, it's that they give up too fast Mm. because you're fighting such an ingrained habit. We did a a virtual consult uh, yesterday with uh, a dog actually the last two days, I've done two of them in the last two days to help get this person kind of on track with stuff. Mm-hmm. She just finished a boarding training. and she lives like four hours away from us mm. and she got home and her dog was still getting really reactive at the fence line. She was doing great with the commands, the walk was good and this and that, but she couldn't get past this like fence issue with the okay. dog, right? So what we did is we set up a scenario where we put the so we set up, uh, we set up uh, uh, the camera on Zoom. Obviously, mm-hmm. we did two sessions. One, working just on making sure all the commands and everything looked good, looked good. Next one, we set up where we had her neighbor bring out the dog, right? Mm-hmm. And she's like, I've tried this before. I tried correcting the dog. It didn't work, whatever, right? Yeah. So we had her recreate the situation and... Sure as shit. She corrected the dog once or twice. Dog didn't give a fuck. I said, correct the dog again. She corrected the dog again. I said, correct the dog again. Corrected the dog again. Maybe like three corrections later, finally the dog completely gave up. You could tell he cared enough about the correction, stopped, moved away from the fence, and then we were out there for like 30 minutes after that. Mm. totally ignoring all the other dogs on the fence, giving her a hundred percent attention. At that point, we were able to start reinforcing the correct behavior and it was a persistence thing, right? It was Mm -hmm. such a new dramatic thing. The dog didn't believe her. The dog was looking Mm -hmm. for the chinks of maybe if I fight through this correction long enough, I'll get away with it, which is exactly what had happened every time she had tried it prior to that. Mm -hmm. She would try to correct once or twice. (laughs) It wouldn't work. She'd go grab the dog and drag the dog into the house. Mm -hmm. And just by staying calm and following through and showing the dog, it's not going to work. I'm gonna stay more persistent than you. It mm-hmm. showed a dramatic enough change where um I think we got a report back today. Dog's been fine with it um, in the couple times that she's seen the dog since, right? Yeah. Hell yeah. So persistence is everything with this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. You know? Yep. You can't let them find the chinks in the armor. No. Okay. <clears throat> um, I often hear, oh, and that virtual session, by the way, guys, is gonna be on the next vlog, I believe, because we recorded mm-hmm. it. So you guys can actually go watch it. It was pretty good. Nice. I often hear people complain that it is cruel to ignore a dog in the manner I advocate. My response is always the same. The fact is that by establishing my relationship with the dog on the correct footing, I could enjoy its company even more. By allowing myself the time to get on with the other jobs I have to do at home undisturbed, I am able to make the time I spend with my dog real quality time. All owners can begin making that quality time for themselves from the very beginning. I'm not saying for one moment that owners should ignore their dogs from now on. They can still fuss and pet over their companions as much as they want, but on their terms. The dog will be happier in this type of relationship as there is no confusion as to who looks after whom. Mm. Major key, don't feel bad about it. You guys can enjoy your dog later. This is if you really look at it like in total, maybe 40 minutes of your day. Yeah. (laughs) If that, yeah. All right, next, the come. Once the five minutes have elapsed, an owner can begin interacting with their dog according to the new rules. The first task I ask them to practice is getting the dog to come to them when they want. The principles guiding them here are request and reward. I use the word request rather than command advisedly because what we are talking about here is a two-way street. Always remember, we are trying to create a situation where the dog is doing things of its own free will. We want the dog to elicit the owner as leader of its own violation. Volatation. The key points I ask people to remember as they move on is that they should always make eye contact and should always call the dog by its name. Most important of all, they should always remember to reward its good behavior when it does come as requested. The choice of reward is entirely the individual's choice. Small pieces of cheese or chopped liver or meat strips make very effective tidbits, I find. But here, it is up to each owner. Whatever your dog likes, a woman once asked me whether she could give her dog a whole tin of dog food. Given the amount of rewarding involved in the, overly, or in the early stages of the process, that would produce a rather overweight dog. So she's talking about obviously using the come command to solicit the attention, which I'm a big fan of in a lot of cases. I usually talk about if I'm going to pet one of my dogs, I'm generally not going to go up to them. I'm going to call them to me. But more of that has to do with kind of getting them into a little bit submissive of a state of mind before I pet them and also... Giving them a little bit of an option, especially when it pertains to guests. And if they don't want the interaction right now, right, if they're kind of staying away from a new person because they're stressed out about them or uncomfortable, I do want to give the dog a little bit of a choice in if they're uncomfortable staying away from those triggers. Mm-hmm. The important thing is that the second the dog comes, the reward is offered in the dog's mouth and that the dog is told, good boy or good girl. I also suggest owners gently stroke the dog's head and neck. From the very beginning, they're establishing an important principle. The dog has done what has been asked to do, and the minute it has done so, it has benefited. By rewarding the dog with food, repeating praise, and stroking the dog in a hugely important area of the body, the owner is sending out a powerful message that it will be replicated time and time again from now on. If the dog comes to the leader when it is asked, that leader will reward it. This is a crucial stage in the early establishment of an owner's leadership and should be practiced until the response is exactly what he or she requires. It is quite possible, for instance, that the dog may respond to the attention and the stroking in particular by becoming agitated once more. If the dog starts to slip back into its old ways like this, the owner must at this point stop immediately and leave the process for at least an hour before starting again. The dog must understand that there are consequences to its actions, and just as good behavior is rewarded with food or attention— undesirable behavior produces a less enjoyable consequence it loses what it craves most its leader's attention if this does happen i ask owners to simply repeat the process from the beginning and keep on repeating it calmly and consistently until the dog understands what they want it is vital that owners don't rush and most of all don't become angry i ask them to keep their pulse rate low at all times i keep them to remember kipling and keep their heads in addition what 19 no oh. An additional tool at this stage is the creation of no-go areas within the house. Early on, a dog can be taught that certain areas of the house belong to the leader. Again, the dog will recognize the principles at work from its, intru- its instinctive connection to the wolf. Within the pack, the alpha space is respected at all times. Subordinates enter this space only at their leader's invitation. So just per that, only thing I would add again is just actually correcting the behavior as opposed to stopping for an hour before you start it again it just make it go so much faster gotcha hopefully a dog should respond immediately to the new system if it does the owner simply needs to spend the next few days going through the same process again beginning and ending it in the same way as they progress they should notice the dog beginning to respond to the call of its name without rushing this is a good indicator that they are approaching their goal I liken the behavior of a dog who has grasped my method to that of a well-behaved child responding to the authority of a school teacher. Asked its name in class, a child will acknowledge the teacher, then wait to be given its task. I want the dog to behave in precisely the same way. I want it to stand or sit there. Acknowledge its owner with eye contact and then await their request, whatever it may be. Dogs have lots of wonderful qualities, but they are not, to my knowledge anyway, mind readers. They do not know what we want them. Uh, What we want of them by laying down the groundwork by establishing leadership in this way owners are paving the way for a new relationship from now on the dog will no longer have to guess what its owner wants. It is ready to listen and cooperate with its owner's request. It is also ready to relax and enjoy life. So again, I agree with virtually all of that. I think when mm-hmm. they got into the come command stuff, I don't think that's as important. Obviously, she yeah. was using that as a way to teach your cum command, and I'm sure she has some sort of uh, opinions on why she's implementing it there You know, to, to establish more hierarchy things and stuff. I think you could probably yeah. separate your come command into your actual training mm-hmm. and just implement the key, which is when we get home, don't get super jacked up. Learn to ignore your dog a little bit. Make them realize they are not in control of controlling you the second that you walk back into the house.
1: Hmm.
0: All right. Number two, danger signals. Hmm. One of the messages I emphasize when I'm working with owners is that all the four elements of Amishian bonding must act in conjunction with each other. As they begin the first part of the bonding process, they should also begin dealing with a second key area. What I categorize as moments of perceived danger. This most commonly manifests itself at home when visitors arrive. We have all witnessed dogs going berserk at the sound of a doorbell or knocker. There is not a postman or milkman alive who has (laughs) not been at the receiving end of this sort of unwanted attention. Again, the key to understanding this behavior lies in the pack. If a dog believes it is the leader of its pack, it believes it is its role to defend the pack's den. So in instances like this, the dog is responding to an unidentified threat. Mm. Someone or something is about to enter its community, and it is anxious to know precisely who or what it is. It believes it is then its responsibility to deal with the intruder. There are two elements to the process I ask owners to go through here. The first involves the owner. The other, the visitor. When the dog begins barking or jumping up at the sound of someone at the door, the job of its owner is to thank the dog. The point here is that the owner, as the leader, is acknowledging the vital part mm. the dog is playing in the pack. The dog has realized there is potential danger and has alerted the decision maker. Mm. It is like a child that has told its parents that there is someone at the door and has been thanked for doing so. Relieved of the responsibility, the dog can get on with leaving the decision maker to decide whether this visitor will be allowed through the door. Oh. <laughs> what do you think about that? Listen, I watched a video one time somebody sent me. And it was a video of some guy. I think it was, it was in Europe somewhere. It was like, Mm -hmm. or something. Right. And this guy was basically made this whole video on how he was watching this German shepherd while its owners were out of town. He's like pet sitting the dog. And the dog was really bad about reacting out the window. Mm -hmm. And for like a week, all he did is the dog would start barking and he would go tell the dog, thank you. Then walk it into another room and just did that a gazillion times. And, I don't think there was any real progress that was actually made. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, like first off we have to say, okay. And again, we'll get more into this and and see what the rest of the opinions are, obviously. But like your dog doesn't know what thank you means. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it it doesn't, right? No. So using thank you as a way to address a problem, this is where you get into, like, some of the nonsense of some of these, like, opinions of training, right? Mm -hmm. Now, maybe she'll say somewhere along the lines of, like, well, the dog will be punished if they don't stop after thank you, to which, at that point, you're just training a cue of thank you means stop doing what you're doing, or else a correction will continue after it, right? Uh, But it's not because you're telling them thank you, and the dog believes, (laughs) wow, I've done my job of alerting (laughs) the the leader of the house that somebody's there. Yeah. Right? So let's, let's go on. Let's see what we get. Yeah. All dogs are clearly different. Some will have developed worse habits than others, so there will inevitably be different reactions. From both the dogs and the humans, experience has taught me that there are four ways of approaching this situation. Firstly, owners can permit the dog to come to the door with them. If this is the case, however, the guests must be asked to completely disregard the dog in the same way that the owner has been doing after separations it must be explained to them that whatever their instinct they must not fuss over the dog now that's a great habit to get into if you're walking into somebody's house that has a dog mm-hmm. and but it has nothing to do with like you know as as any sort of like hierarchy thing or anything like that and yeah. it solely has to do with you not you know the dog is probably checking you out and figuring out if you're okay or not right yeah. so the dog coming to the door you need to be totally still because if in that moment Before the dog is totally comfortable with you, you start messing with them, you put yourself at risk of being bit, which is why we don't recommend doing this. I don't want the dog to be in charge of deciding if my guest is okay or not. Yeah, And I shouldn't have to have my guest say, like, be 100% still or else you might be at risk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. This is, I know, very difficult, particularly for those who love animals. And in the case of dogs that are right up there in people's faces demanding attention. So the first alternative to this ...is to offer the owner the option of putting the dog on a lead. This will allow him or her greater control if the situation becomes difficult. If the dog's behavior is truly unacceptable, the next alternative should be applied... ...and the dog should be asked to go into another room. It is vital that this is not seen as an act of exclusion or punishment, however. The dog must not be physically shoved or lifted out of the way. It should not be thrown out of the house into the garden, for instance... Throughout the process, I want the dog to be making positive associations with its behavior in certain situations, so this should be done according to the reward principles already established. The dog should be praised for recognition, <laughs> for recognizing the danger, then removed from the decision-making process and given a favorable tidbit for cooperating. The door can then be shut so that it is out of the way temporarily. Okay, so basically what you're doing is you're doing a redirecting process you're trying yeah. to get the dog into a state of mind of guests coming over predicting getting something in another room that they really really want mm-hmm. right so it's a process of uh, i suppose you can call it like counter conditioning or or technically that would be classical conditioning you're classically conditioning a guest coming over meaning you go into a room and get something really fun yeah which gets your attention a little bit off of the person coming in which should hypothetically make you a little calmer but yeah again in practice <laughs> questionable
1: we'll see yeah
0: by dealing with the situation in this way, the owner will create the time and space to tell the guest what is going on. The visitor can then be briefed to behave in the same way as is now the norm. Once this is understood, the dog can be safely let back in the living area. I always ask owners to be sure the dog does this without anyone speaking to them as they enter. If this happens, the dog should recognize the situation as normal and begin behaving as it has been. hmm The fourth and final option for dealing with this area applies if a guest either doesn't believe in what the owner is doing or simply cannot understand it. Children, of course, are the most obvious example of the latter, and I will deal with them in detail in due course. In this case, it may be best to leave the dog in a separate room. This may be the best course of action, too, if you have friends and family who simply will not go along with the process. For most people, it is not worth falling out with friends and family over. Okay, so I agree To some extent with that last part of like, listen, if you got family members, we talk all the time, that are just fucking idiots and Mm -hmm. like don't follow any of the rules of your house or constantly pestering your dog, you know, and it's it's creating problems, yeah, put your dogs away. Don't bring them up. There's no reason to fight that fight then at that point. Mm -hmm. Now, my issue with this kind of method at this point is that you're solely dependent on your guest is the one that's actually training the dog. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not in any control of the dog where I can say, regardless of what the guest is doing right now, I can keep you under control, which is a problem. Right. They're working through association, which is a powerful thing. Listen, if you can get every single person that steps into your house to follow every freaking direction that you have, Mm -hmm. then yeah, like over time, your dog's behavior will get calmer. If, you know, there's nothing exciting, like people come over, you get ignored by them right yeah. people come over you get ignored by them right yep. that will create a calmer dog over time the association will go from oh my god people come over and it's the greatest fucking thing in the world To people come over and it doesn't really bother me a whole lot yeah right but that's where training comes into play right when you have training established you get the best of both worlds and regardless of what your guest is doing you could keep your dog under control right mm-hmm. and then once you go to release them You could then work on a little bit of the association side of things through holding your dog to a high standard of, hey, whatever they're doing, you have to behave in this way. But you also can coach your guests on, like, more appropriate behavior around them. But you're not contingent on them, like, potentially doing something wrong and screwing up all your training. Yeah. Uh, All right. In many ways, learning Amishian bonding is comparable to learning to drive a car. In time, the fundamental routines will become second nature. It will only be in challenging situations that owners will even need to think about the practices they are applying. For the most part, the knowledge will be stored away in the subconscious, a useful new skill that will add enormously to the enjoyment of the dog lover's life. No one, however, is allowed to drive the car without being shown where to find and how to operate basic controls such as the brakes, clutch, and accelerator. The next stage, an owner will, however, move on to is walking the dog. Before he or she is able to move out into the wider world, the owner must learn the basic skills required to exercise control in that world. As in all dog training regimens, these controls are the ability to get a dog to come to its owner, to walk at its owner's side, to sit, and to stay. There is, the old saying goes, no place like home. And when it comes to laying down the foundation stones of my method, this is certainly the case. I passionately believe there is no place like the dog's own environment to begin building the relationship established by Mishian bonding. So I ask that owners allow a fortnight at least to bring all the elements of my method together. Of course, the process of getting the dog to come at its owner's request has already begun during the bonding work. That follows the five-minute rule. At this early stage, the dog has begun to realize that certain behavior is rewarded by food while other behavior is not. It quickly chooses the behavior that benefits it the most. This principle will remain central to every element of training at every stage. As they move on, the first thing I recommend owners do is to teach the dog to sit. It is, for most ordinary dog owners, the most important means of getting a dog to exercise its right to freeze. It is a useful and at times vital control to have available. In certain dangerous situations, it could save a dog's life. Central to everything I do is the idea that dogs begin making choices of their free will. At every turn, I want to make positive associations with certain behavior. I want them to recognize the situations where they know there is something in it for them, that instinctively they will be rewarded if they do the right thing. As I have already said, there is no more powerful tool in this respect than food. To teach a dog to sit, I ask the owner to first call their dog to them, then to bring a morsel of food up to the dog, almost touching its nose, then draw the morsel over the dog's head. As the dog instinctively arches its head back to follow the smell, so its body will tip back naturally as well. As this happens, the dog's bottom should touch the ground. As it does so, the tidbit should be popped in the dog's mouth, instantly accompanied by a verbal confirmation, the word sit. The signal is clear. The dog's action is good, and it is being rewarded. Yes. <clears throat> you start calling treats tidbits. Tidbit of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, wrong order of operations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could lure the dog, obviously, but the sit cue... Q- <laughs> Okay, guys, conditioning, again, classical conditioning. The the neutral stimulus needs to come before the behavior. Sit happens. We then get the dog into the sit. Then we reward the dog so that sit predicts the behavior. So many old school trainers do this overlaying thing of like, I say sit after the dog sits, and they'll associate it with the thing that they're doing. It's not how classical conditioning works, guys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to read all about training commands here. That's fine. We're going to move to the next step. How many of these are there? What did we say? hundred pages and shit? Yeah, something like that. Hour. All right, so we're going to move on to number three. So the, the rest of this is just teaching, um, you know, obviously teaching the different commands. Right? Yeah. So three, taking charge of the walk. The first disciplines, coming, sitting, and heel work, should in almost all cases take no more than a week. They provide the foundation for the next major area going on a walk, which is equivalent in the dog's eyes to leading the pack on a hunt. People's walking habits will, of course, vary considerably. Some will only have the time to take their dogs for a short walk each morning and evening. Others will be free to go on long and frequent walks at any time of the day or night. My method is intended to fit into all lifestyles. Whatever the situation, the key to this element of the process is that owners take charge of the walk, By far the easiest way for the owner to know if the walk is going according to plan is to ask themselves if they are happy and in control. Once more, calmness and consistency are crucial. The first task is to get the dog used to a lead. I personally prefer light rope leashes. Chains to me seem like weapons. And if you bear in mind that a dog only pulls on a lead because it believes it must, being leader, any form of physical restraint will not change its mind. (laughs) The dog's mind must be changed as to its role in the pack. Mm. I ask owners to call their dog to them, then using a food reward, place the lead over their head. This is without doubt one of the most intense moments of the method. It marks the first occasion when the dog has been denied the option to flee. It is also the first time the owner has placed an object around the immensely important head, neck, and shoulder area of the animal. If the dog shows any anxiety about this, make the association with the lead a positive one using a food reward. Once it has accepted the lead, the dog's belief in the owner's leadership will deepen yet further. It is, of course, hardly surprising that all dogs become excited at the prospect of heading off into the big wide world. To them, they are heading off on the hunt, the most elemental activity of all. The adrenaline rush they experience is welcome. It is the owner's job, however, to keep the dog's enthusiasm steady. It is an important test of leadership. When the dogs accepted the lead, I ask the owner to get it, come to the heel, again using a food reward if necessary. If the dog attempts to pull away, I instruct owners to stand still. The dog is being demonstrated the consequence of this action. The owner should then go back to the beginning and ask the dog to come to heel once more. Once the dog has came to the owner's side, it is time to move off. Again, any sign of pulling on the line must result in the lean being relaxed and the walk suspended. The crucial message that has got to be put across now is that the dog must remain close to and not in front of the owner, but at their heel. Any deviation results in a return to the den. This principle is never more important than at the next crucial stage as the owner goes out of the front door. To the dog, this is a portal into another world, an exit from the den, and a home to a million potential threats. It is absolutely vital that the owner goes through the door first. This signifies that he or she is the leader, and that he or she is performing the job of making sure the coast is clear. Again, this is an immensely powerful signal. If the dog somehow forces itself out first, then it is back to the beginning again. Again, this is where you get back to some... (laughs) See this is again this is the problem with some of this like I always call it like the holistic dog training approach which mm-hmm. is like the you know again the 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 dogs are pack animals and they everything they do is because of some sort of deep seated like <laughs> you know yeah. pack mentality and stuff like uh-huh. that like guys there's just there's just some dogs out there that are just really fucking neurotic and you could stand there all day long and not yeah. move and restrain them with the leash and They're going to keep pulling every time you take a step forward. (laughs) Yeah. It's just going to happen. Like Mm in, in, in many cases, it's not that it won't work because I'm sure if you had eight hours, right? (laughs) Yeah. If for eight hours, I took a neurotic fucking crazy all over the place dog and I implemented this method, right? Mm -hmm. At eight hours, the dog is probably going to get pretty bored and stop rehearsing it. Yeah. Right. The problem is nobody has the time to be able to stay consistent enough with routines like this in order to actually see the result they're looking for yeah and in all of these cases you know these these trainers will make it sound like it's just the dog is is respecting you and and they're seeing you as the leader which is why they're stopping the behavior but again scientifically we know we're using negative punishment to stop behaviors right Mm -hmm. we're restricting something the dog wants and then giving it to them when they're behaving properly and this gets back to the whole force-free debate which is like that approach in theory, should work really well, mm-hmm. but in practice is not as effective as we want it to be. It's not quick enough. Yeah. For some dogs, they can't make that correlation fast enough, and the exterior motivations around them are too strong. That pulling towards them constantly is always achieving some sort of reinforcement to their behavior. Yeah, You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that that's my issue, right? And that's why we get into, like, as training has evolved, like, this book's obviously 23 years old, right? Yeah. So i obviously... I'm sure, I I like some of what she's saying, and, and like I said, it's not wrong, <clears throat> but like as training's evolved, we've solved these problems by having a deeper understanding of how learning works, yeah. by having different tools at our disposal to be able to get these points across, mm-hmm. and to be able to achieve what it is we want. Like, all these places where, you know, she's talking about whatever, you know using negative punishment, restricting access to stuff, things Mm -hmm. like that. If instead of using negative punishment, we just use positive punishment in those situations and we make sure our motivation is stronger, you're going to see more rapid results. Mm -hmm. And then you could follow all these things she's saying like to a T and you're going to get fantastic results out of it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like back then, 23 years ago, I mean, twenty-three years ago, I wasn't training dogs, right? But I'm assuming yeah. the training climate was much different. People weren't really mm-hmm. using, you know, things like e collars or pinch collars, or obviously they were using yeah. choke chains. But you know, there was a different philosophy behind it. Yeah, for sure. You know, mm-hmm. so that's kind of the issue with a with a lot of this kind of stuff. You yeah. know, so I don't know. I mean, let's see what we got here. I think you're pretty- Yeah, I mean, we're almost an hour in. We're going to let's go ahead and we're going to touch on the last part here because the rest of this just gets into, you know, teaching the walk, right? Which obviously we know how this principle works, right? Yeah. She believes dog needs to be following you, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, we're doing consistent drills, routines, or rituals, as she says, of Mm -hmm. stopping and restricting access of continuing to go to eliminate pulling and get the dog following you. Yeah. Not a flawed logic at all, just not as effective as it could be. Mm -hmm. So, part number four here, we're going to jump right into is the last part of the chapter, is food power. The controls applied in the wild by wolf packs are, of course, beyond us. Even if we wanted to, we are physically incapable of replicating the aggression and extraordinary body language with which the Alpha exerts its leadership. Yet by adding a little human ingenuity and subtlety, I believe one of the most potent tools available to the Alpha is available to us. Obtaining the power at feeding time is an immensely important element of Amishian bonding, for reasons that will be obvious, I call this element of the technique gesture eating. It is an element I ask people to apply for the first two weeks or so only, if at all possible. I prefer every human member of the family to participate. By acting as a team, this will allow them to communicate an immense amount of information and establish each of them at an upper level of the household's hierarchy. Again, the overriding priority here is to be consistent, so it is essential this is repeated at All the dogs' mealtimes during this period. Many people, for practical reasons I can understand, feed their dogs during the evenings only. For maximum impact, I prefer it if dogs are fed twice daily, once in the morning and again in the evening. The technique is simple. Before preparing the dog's food, I ask owners to place a small snack, one per person in the home, on the plate on a raised working surface. Anything will do, a biscuit, a cracker, or a piece of toast. I then ask them to place the dog's bowl next to the plate making sure the dog is paying attention. They should then proceed to mix its meal. Once this is done without speaking to or looking at the dog, each member of the family should reach for their snack and eat it. (laughs) Getting back to actually legitimately (laughs) eating first. Yeah. Only when everyone has finished eating their biscuit or cracker should the dog's bowl be placed on the floor. This should be done again with as little ceremony as possible and only minor recognition of the dog. Then the owner should walk away and leave the dog to eat in peace. The message here is clear and powerful. As in the wolf's pack, the pecking order is clearly displayed at feeding time. It is the leader and its subordinates who eat first. It is only when they are satisfied that the next ranking member of the pack is able to eat its meal. To underline this message, any dog who walks away from its food during mealtime must have its bowl removed immediately. Owners should not worry about it starving. When it comes to matters related to mealtimes, dogs will pick up the thread extremely quickly. Take my word for it. The point here again is that the dog must learn that only acceptable behavior is rewarded. It is the leader who dictates the terms under which food is distributed and eaten. If it does not adhere to the leader's rules at mealtime, it will miss its turn. Dogs are pack animals. They like to live in groups. I often say to people that two dogs are half the work of one. They do play together, they do amuse each other, and when the owner is absent, they provide company for each other. Whatever the domestic setup, however, it is important to remember that the dog regards the other animal, including the humans, that share its space as fellow members of the pack. We all need to live by the rules, and the dog is more willing to live by the rules than we are. The key to everything I do lies in establishing a set of rules that the dog will understand, within the context of its pack. Once an owner has begun applying the four principles I have outlined here, it should take him or her around a fortnight to get their dog to digest these rules fully. Of course, no two pets are the same. The more damaged the dog, the longer it takes. The more severe the behavior, the longer it takes. There is no place for fear or pain in my method, so my message is always the same. Be patient, be gentle, and it will happen.
1: You you pretty much hit her to a T on everything before you got into it.
0: I'll tell you, when I first started, I think I had a little, hi- I don't want to say higher of hopes. Like I thought <laughs> it, I thought it was going to be a little bit, I think there's going to be a little bit more of like useful information to it. And I yeah. think the first section, like talking about, you know, the the coming home, like that was the best chapter of them all. It hit the nail yeah. on the head. The rest of it. Not so much. Yeah. And then at the end, gets into the, we don't use fear or pain. It's like, but at the same time, like, you're kind of living these, like, hierarchical rules of, like, okay, cool. Like, you're, you're saying you're disciplining the dog for things by, like, removing stuff from them. But, yeah. like, well, what if that doesn't work? Yeah. What do you do then? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like a lot of these old school trainers, man, like, they're subtly using a lot more correction is that like Caesar is kind of like that right mm-hmm. he talks a lot about the human side of things and what not to do which is very important yeah but he doesn't talk as much about delivering corrections and stuff like that he, he, he kind of nices them over and interrupts mm-hmm. the dog and this and that but in actuality like you watch episodes of the dog whisper and stuff like that like dudes jabbing these dogs pretty good for mm-hmm. things they're not supposed to be doing yeah you know um where i'm not saying she's doing that obviously <laughs> but a lot of these old school trainers kind of fall into that same realm of yeah. stuff yeah, right? no, for sure. So it's not bad. I mean, listen, that is one chapter of it. I'm very interested to see. She's got a couple chapters in here that are solely designated to like specific problem behaviors, mm-hmm. right? Like working through aggression, working through separation, anxiety, stuff like that. So we'll have to at one point get into those as well and see what her takes are on actually working through behavioral issues. Because those methods with if you go adopt a brand new dog and the dog is pretty stable and doesn't have major behavioral issues and you follow those methods, you're probably going to have a pretty good dog. Yeah. You know, but when you're combating dogs that already have a big like relational issue, um, that's where things yeah. get a little bit more challenging when associations sure. are strongly ingrained with dogs. And that's where like those methods are just not as easy as they make them out to be. Yeah. But that first part, like I said, I definitely recommend everybody follow that shit.
1: Yeah. No, that was really good. But then, yeah, she got real holistic on us. A little
0: holistic with it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so.
1: But it's just really funny to me. You literally like called it like every single time on spot of what
0: she was going to say. It's interesting, right? Because again, 23 years ago, Mm -hmm. right? Like trainings evolved since then. Like I really try not to be too strict on this because I'd be very interested. Like I don't know if she's still training or not, obviously. Mm -hmm. But like what are you doing differently 23 years ago versus now? you know yeah. what's what's different about your methods have you applied some modern techniques like yeah, sure. have you changed some of the things as far as like how we're giving commands and teaching commands and mm-hmm. stuff like that and, and the order in which we're doing so and following a little bit more of like the science behind things yeah but i like reading this kind of stuff to learn those things because there are always is little bits and pieces you could pull from stuff like that and apply it right yeah, sure. and like i said the way she articulated the coming home right? Mm -hmm. Um, Let's say hypothetically I read this entire book and everything else is trash in it. Mm -hmm. That was one really good, well-articulated thing that Mm -hmm. I can take and apply into my training. And this is where looking at this from like, people ask me all the time, like, how do you become a dog trainer? It's by reading shit like this, even if you might disagree with 99% of it Mm -hmm. and pulling bits and pieces that you like and doing that regularly over the course of the years. And uh, your communication with your clients and your training abilities will just, improve greatly and compound over time yeah so do you you know that like that
1: that era of of that like dog training i yeah. feel like do you feel like that became like prominent because you know pretty much everything before that was like the kind of yank and crank thing was the more popular so it was just kind of like the ebb and flow of I, like i think how, it was
0: probably a little bit of both right i I think people like her and Caesar like there there is undeniably people out there that are just good with animals. Mhm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like like I've met people before that I just like look at them and I'm like <laughs> your dog's not really trained from like the standard in which I would call trained, but yeah. like you have a very well-behaved dog. Mhm. You know? And you communicate with them in a way that they actually understand and you hold them accountable for things and you provide a good life for them. And, and you know what I mean? And it's like, it's not the way I would want to live with my dog necessarily, but it's it's good. You know, yeah. it's, it's very good. Like you have just like a, a knack Yeah. right and i think people like her like i'm just assuming just based on this picture she lives somewhere whatever she's got all land and and always out in nature with her dogs and stuff and Mm -hmm. like when you're living this natural life with your dogs like away from the cities and away from all the congestion and like the day-to-day bustle and the nine to five like all this bullshit you know what i mean like you could live a really holistic life with your dogs yeah and i always tell people we should be striving for more of that like the more we can get our dogs to that generally the more balanced and well-behaved behaved they'll be mm. but as trainers especially modern day trainers i think like we just live in a different world yeah you know what i mean like mm-hmm. if you live in i use the example like downtown manhattan or even like cleveland cleveland's a big city right like a lot of these methods it's just not it's not as conducive to your day-to-day needs like you can't just like stop every four seconds and have your dog just learn oh we don't walk anymore because you were pulling and, and all of that right like you, you can't just do that because When I walk out my front door, not here, but at the facility, there's so much stimuli going on around them that Mm. that is just not going to be like punishing enough for them. Yeah, it's not, you know. And you got to kind of you got to up the ante a little bit. You got to add more corrections and stuff like that into it. So I just think it's they're just living different lives. Yeah, and they're naturally just good with dogs, and they're trying to solve the problem that their clients are coming in with by teaching their clients to be more like them, which Mm -hmm. is good and that's important. But those people that have that natural instinct, it's very difficult to get an average owner, especially one that's really struggling with their dog, mm-hmm. to just evolve into that. It's true. So we kind of try to find the best of both worlds. Like, let's try mm-hmm. to get you to, like, meet me halfway with this, and then we'll get the dog to meet us the other half of the way. Yep. So. Sounds good. All right, guys. We're going to go. Hour and 10 minutes. Not bad. Yeah. Um, You guys are going to have entertainment for while I'm gone, and <laughs> we will have a new episode up for you guys And like... Our new filmed episode in, like, two and a half weeks. Yep. All right, guys. We'll catch you next time.
1: Yeah. Also, if if you like the books, let us know. Yeah. You know? Maybe we'll keep doing it. Yeah. All right. See you.